0: Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.
1: Informing America's farmers and ranchers. This is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams.
0: Hello everyone and welcome to AOA. Thank you for joining us on this Thanksgiving day and we wish all of you a very happy and safe and wonderful and blessed Thanksgiving. So glad you have joined us today. Coming up on our program on this holiday we're going to go back and review some of the recent interviews we've had on covering a lot of very important information. We'll be talking with Nick Giordano Vice President, Global Government Affairs for the National Pork Producers Council talking about some important trade issues. We'll be talking with Scott Yeager with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association about the Biden administration's decision on waters of the US to go back to the pre-2015 rule and why NCBA opposes it. And a lot of other folks in agriculture have some real concerns about it as well. We'll also talk with Don Close, Senior Animal Protein Analyst for Rabo He'll give us his cattle market outlook and a look at the meat export picture, demand picture overall. All that coming up on this holiday edition of AOA. But we're gonna start it off with Kent Backus with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. He is the Senior Director of International Trade for NCBA. They have called for the stoppage of beef imports from Brazil. And he explained to us
2: why. Appreciate the opportunity to, to speak with you this morning. Uh, you know, last week we decided to uh, send this letter to Secretary Vilsack and to ask for USDA to you know, immediately suspend uh, and indefinitely suspend these imports of Brazilian beef. And it and it has to do with our, our concerns about Brazil's lack of reporting of animal health issues, uh, you know, that we felt that, you know, the fact that Brazil has these massive uh, lapses of time between when events have occurred, when they've actually been reported uh, to the public, and, and more importantly to the World Organization for Animal Health, uh, we think that that is uh, uh, kind of a non-compliance issue. But it's also a bigger concern of of whether or not Brazil actually has uh, a central competent authority or an ag ministry that has the ability to report these issues timely, and until we can nail that down and get those assurances, we don't think that, uh, you know, they should be able to uh, to export their products here to the U.S. Have you had a
0: response from USDA?
2: We have not had a response officially yet. Uh, we have, uh, you know, this, as this was, uh, you know, submitted to them on Friday, we've given them you know, a couple of days to to look over this, but as far as a formal response, we have not received one yet. We know that uh, this is an issue that we have uh, we have been raising uh, for quite some time about our concerns about you know, Brazil's overall uh, you know safety status. Uh, you know, Brazil unfortunately just has a history of of you know not reporting these atypical BSE cases, and even though you know atypical BSE, it's it's kind of a freak occurrence in nature. The fact that they didn't report it, it does raise a lot of questions of trust. And so uh, atypical BSE is also something that is is not usually trade-restricted. But, you know, as part of the OIE, which Brazil is also a participant in, you know, we're supposed to report these cases within 24 hours. Brazil didn't report theirs for several weeks. And this isn't the first time that's happened. They've had a case in 2019 where it took them over a month. They had cases in 2014 where it took, uh, you know, uh, just as long, not longer. And then in 2010, there was a case that wasn't reported until 2012, so two full years passed. And so how can we, you know, I, I, I think that just out of abundance of caution, we need to review their entire system just to make sure that, you know, they, they are, you know, uh, meeting up to their obligations. And, and until they can demonstrate that, we don't think they deserve the right to be able to, or the privilege to be able to, uh, to export to the U.S.
0: How much Brazilian beef comes into this country?
2: So as of last Friday, uh, it, it was around 77,000 metric tons, and over half of that is, is cooked product. So uh, most of most of what would be restricted would, would definitely be uh, those lean beef trimmings that are coming into the U.S., and that's a higher value for, for them. Uh, but, you know, most of what Brazil sends here is either going to be cooked product or it's going to be lean beef trimmings. Brazil uh, Brazil's not one of the major import sources for us. Uh, you have other countries like, like Nicaragua, Canada, Mexico, New Zealand, and Australia that send, you know, uh, vastly larger volumes of beef to the U.S. Uh, but they, they also comply with all of these animal health uh, and uh, food safety requirements. So... Yeah, you know, we don't think that Brazil should be should be treated any differently. Uh, and you know, and Brazil's not the only country that's had atypical cases this year. Uh, there are three other countries: Germany, Spain, and the United Kingdom. All had atypical cases, and all of them reported them almost immediately to the OIE. So why did Brazil, you know, fail to comply? Why did Brazil, you know, you know, delay the reporting? And until we can get those answers. I think that we need to we need to we need to take action to hold them accountable and suspend their imports.
0: It would almost seem that you wouldn't even have to ask USDA to suspend them. It, it would seem that would would that what you, the instances you just cited that should be enough to uh, raise some red flags.
2: Well, this isn't the first time that Brazil would be suspended either. If you keep in mind, you know they had, uh, they didn't have access to the United States for the longest time, uh, and a lot of that was you know concerns over uh, FMD and and other issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know USDA restored their access under the Trump administration, uh, and then within just a matter of months, uh, it was suspended again because they had <laughs> they had major issues uh, with uh, food safety. Uh, you know, once they once they were allowed to ship to the U.S., uh, you know, our inspectors were looking at everything they were sending here and they had they had such high rates of rejection uh, that, you know, USDA said, look, we have to step in. We have to suspend this because we have concerns. And they were finding, you know, things like, uh, you know, fecal matter and other things like that in that Brazilian product. Uh, Brazil has taken a lot of steps to, you know, to uh, address that and they they've we're able to, you know, restore that access, but this is this is not the food safety angle that we're we're looking at right now. We're looking at this from an animal health concern, because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, atypical BSE it, it's still something serious. And in the United States, we've taken a lot of steps to make sure that you know we never have any classical cases again. But we do have the occasional atypical case, and when we do, we report it. We make sure that that animal or its progeny never enter the food supply chain. Uh, we don't have reason to believe that 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 is a necessarily a concern with Brazil itself right now, but we want to get to the bottom of why they are not reporting these instances. And if they're not reporting a typical BSE uh, which doesn't have trade restrictions, then what other diseases that do have trade restrictions are they are they failing to report? And those are some bigger concerns I think we need to look into, and we need assurances and actions from the Brazilian government to to restore that trust. Kent Backus
0: with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Up next, we'll hear from Nick Giordano with the National Pork Producers Council. We'll be talking about trade issues with him as well. Stay with us. On this Thanksgiving, you're listening to AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world.
1: Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams.
0: And welcome back to this Thanksgiving Day edition of AOA. Appreciate you letting us be part of your day. Hope you're having a great holiday. Last week in Kansas City at the National Association of Farm Broadcasting Convention, I talked with Nick Giordano, Vice President, Global Government Affairs for the National Pork Producers Council. There have been some positive things happening with pork trade. We've moved a lot of pork. Exports have been good. Uh, Vietnam lowering a tariff uh, for getting our pork into that market, but there are concerns around the globe, some areas that the pork industry would like to see the Biden administration address, especially when it comes to getting back into a trade deal that the pork industry feels would be very beneficial for the U.S. pork producers. Nick Giordano talked about some of those recent positive developments, but also challenges and
1: concerns and priorities moving forward. Well, it sure is, and it has been for quite a few years. And um, unfortunately, it doesn't look like it's going to get resolved anytime soon, notwithstanding our efforts. We've been all over Capitol Hill talking to the last administration, this administration, and it's tough sledding. Um, We're not going to give up because it's so important to um, our stakeholders. You know, we we have a shortage of labor both on farm and in our plants, and that's a constraint. You've heard a lot of talk about um, capacity constraints. Mm-hmm. Well, labor is part of the reason. Um, you know. And line speeds is just a, a, a big victory for us, so thank goodness that'll help with capacity. But you're absolutely right. Labor is an important issue we spend a lot of time on.
0: At a time when demand is very, very good, um, one of the challenges though is moving the product to those uh, to those customers right around the world.
1: Well, that's been challenging, and uh, we, it's well known that we've got um, problems at the ports. Um, but notwithstanding that, our exports have been very, very good, very good. and uh, that's just so important. And uh, uh, even though we're down significantly in China this year. Um, we're up, we're, we're up close to 10% in value. Uh, we're up not quite as much in volume, but we're up in volume. So, you know, given the pandemic, um, you know, and and uh, given the, the port situation, that's pretty good news.
0: Everybody tries to read the tea leaves on China, what they're gonna do, what they're gonna buy from a pork situation perspective. Where are they with African swine fever? And what do you see from them as a market for U.S. pork?
1: Well, I th- you know, I think the big issue is geopolitical and wh- how are U.S.-China relations going to shake out going forward. Um, as a purely economic matter, that's the biggest pork-consuming market in the world. And we're, you know, we're, we're when you talk about supplying safe, high-quality pork in large volumes, you're talking about the United States of America. So, you know, as an economic matter, we should be selling a lot of pork for many years to come. The wild card here is what are the relations going to be like between the two nations. And of course, we're cheering heartily for scaling down this trade war, you know, as as much pork as we've sold the past few years into China, you know, largely because of ASF Um, we've lost a lot of value. We're we're not recouping the value we should be because of the trade war and because of these punitive tariffs. So most of the world right now has got a uh, selling pork at an 8% tariff in China. We're 33%. Wow! At one point, we were over 70%. So it's really incredible that we've been able to to move as much pork to China as we, we have. Again, that's largely a function of ASF. And, uh, you know, it's a top priority of National Pork Producers Council to get those tariffs reduced. But again, we're part of something, you know, that soybeans and other sectors of agriculture and other parts of the economy. And that's the geo, the trade war and the geopolitics. So it's it's tough to navigate.
0: And we really don't know yet how this relationship between the Biden administration and China is going to play out. Uh, we're not hearing much about it. Just starting to a little bit, some early talks. So we don't know.
1: No, we we don't. And I I think some people are surprised that the Biden administration, you know, didn't depart significantly from the policies of the Trump administration. But it it is what it is. Now, having said that, as important as it is for us to get those punitive tariffs off in China, you know, we're not a one no Johnny, and um, we may kind of be talking to ourselves, but we keep talking about the U.S. going back into TPP, or what's now called CPTPP. C- mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, this is, I, I think I can make an argument that the pork industry is more disadvantaged than any sector of the economy. Not just an ag, any sector. Um, we got we to gotta export, and we are very competitive. And the irony here is the deal that we worked so hard on uh, in the Obama administration, so closely with our trade officials, um, you know, and sometimes we were arm wrestling with our own trade officials, but when all was said and done, we got a phenomenal deal for pork. And now the irony is we got to sit by and watch our trading partners get the benefit of the deal. the eu basically got from vietnam and other tpp countries the deal you know that we negotiated which of course canada and mexico are getting so it's taken the the sheen off we just had a big victory in vietnam and it's good and i don't want i i don't want to minimize it we worked hard so when tpp went away right we worked with the trump administration on some bilateral pork initiatives philippines where we've got more access success Mm -hmm. Vietnam. Um, and we just had a success. I mean, Vice President Harris was there. Pork was at the top of the list. We just had a formal announcement on July 1st. The tariff on pork in Vietnam goes from 15 percent to 10 percent. Here's the rub, And that's good. And we're grateful. Here's the rub. Our CPTPP competitors in the European Union are at 7.5 percent. And they're going to continue to scale down year after year. So it's just one small example of how we got to get back in the game. And thank goodness, in the last administration, we when the president pulled us out, I the first thing I did in January twenty sixteen er, 2017 was I got on a plane and went to Japan. And because uh, we knew, okay, we're out of TPP, we got to have a bilateral deal with Japan. We were already starting to lose sales there. So thank goodness that happened. I guess it could be worse. Yeah. We're, we appreciate, you know, this new market access we got in Vietnam. Don't get me wrong; we're very appreciative to this administration uh, for doing that. But we really, our big ass is, we got to get back into CPTPP.
0: Why are we not hearing more about Trade Promotion Authority?
1: Well, I look, I, you know, trade has become a, a difficult word with a lot of the American public, you know both Republicans and Democrats in globalization. And there's a lot of concern, you know, for us in ag, it's really straightforward and we're really productive. And most of us are export oriented and we got to have these trade deals. But I think, you know, right or wrong, there's a feeling out there that the average American has been left behind, that globalization hasn't been good. And I, you know, I, I guess I, my takeaway from all this is look, we, w- these things aren't mutually exclusive. And I go back to the NAFTA renegotiation in USMCA. And we had a very strong bipartisan outcome. In fact, we had a majority of the Democratic caucus support the deal. Right. So, I, you know, I, I think, I, I, you know, I, I think if for no other reason than geopolitical, The U.S. has got to go back in the CPTPP, and I think it's positive that, uh, you know, we have high-ranking trade officials over in Asia now talking about an Indo-Pacific trade framework. That's all good, we welcome that. But, you know, our hope is, and I know it's shared by many others in ag and, and many others across the spectrum of the economy, we got to get back into CPTPP. That's got to be part of this. So it, for, as far as national pork producers is concerned, that can't happen fast enough.
0: Priority one, right?
1: Uh, on trade, absolutely. Yeah, on trade, yeah. You know, getting the China punitive China tariffs off and getting into CPTPP, absolutely.
0: Nick, always good to talk with you. Thanks a lot. We'll see what happens. It seems like trade has just been on the back burner so far in this first year with this administration. We'll see if things change in the coming year. Thanks a lot.
1: Thanks for having me, Mike.
0: Nick Giordano, Vice President, Global Government Affairs for the National Pork Producers Council. That's Nick Giordano with the National Pork Producers Council. I talked with him last week in Kansas City. A little bit later on, we'll talk with Don Close with the Rabo AgriFinance. He's our Senior Animal Protein Analyst. Some of his thoughts on meat demand and where we're going moving forward, especially his outlook for the cattle market. But up next, speaking of cattle, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association is opposing the Biden administration's decision on waters of the U.S. We'll talk about that next with Scott Yeager here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture A lot of folks in agriculture concerned about the Biden administration's decision to go back to pre-2015 for the waters of the U.S. rule. Not sure exactly what that may mean, but it does raise some concerns for agriculture. Let's talk about it with Scott Yeager, Chief Environmental Counsel for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Scott, thank you for joining us. First of all, your thoughts, your reaction to this announcement.
3: Well, we oppose it. Um, You know, we knew it was coming. They announced that they were going to move on a two-step rulemaking process to repeal and replace the Navigable Waters Protection Rule, which, as you know, that was the rule that was put forward by the Trump administration in 2020, which pulled back on some of the federal overreach of the 2015 WOTUS rule and provided some clear agricultural exclusions for our farmers and ranchers. So we we much preferred that version of WOTUS, um, but that is being undone by virtue of this proposal. That's just been put out by the EPA and Army Corps, which, which basically goes back to, like you said, the pre-2015 rules, which are from 1986. Um, you know, the 86 regulation is, is probably better than the 2015 WOTUS rule from the Obama administration, but not by much. And really, at the end of the day, what it does is it relies much more on case-by-case determinations of the government. So that means you're going to have to go and ask the Army Corps, or the EPA, whether or not you have a lotus on your property, and then they use their case-by-case determination to figure that out. Uh, so that puts a lot of the power back in the hands of the federal government, rather than putting it in the hands of the landowners. So not a good, not a good uh, uh, announcement uh, by NCBA standard. It Really seems to be a step backwards after the progress that was made with the new rule. It is a step backwards. It's going back, you know, back 40 years back to, or 30 years back to the 86 regulations. And, and, you know, we had a good rule that was put in place in 2020 that we were able to engage in and to have a voice in the process. And now that's being undone. Something that this administration likes to talk a lot about is trying to stop the ping-ponging of regulations. Well, this announcement they just made does exactly that. It's ping-ponging back again. So we're having to live through more uncertainty and more of this pendulum swinging um, between administrations. And this is the latest example of that.
0: We're talking with Scott Yeager, Chief Environmental Counsel for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. So, Scott, it took four years for the Trump administration to change the old rule, get the new one in – What's the process now? What do you see as a timeline for this administration to try to make this change?
3: Well, this administration is taking the exact same process as the last one, which is a two-step repeal and replace process. So I think you could look at the Trump administration as a pretty good marker for how long it's going to take for this administration to do the same thing. So you're looking at a full four years of this term of the Biden-Harris administration to get this done. Um, So the announcement last week uh, that we're talking about here today kicks off a 60-day comment period where they're taking comments from the public. Um, Bradica Fox, who is the head of the Office of Water, was just out in North Dakota yesterday where she met with a group of stakeholders that included uh, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association vice president, Todd Wilkinson, as well as the North Dakota Stockmen's Association uh, president, Julie Ellingson. Uh, So we had some good representation in in that meeting, Um, but that'll, uh, comments and all that will be uh, closed up, buttoned up in about 60 days, which puts us into January. At some point after that, they'll finalize the repeal, and then they're going to move on a second rulemaking, which, again, will have its own comment period. So you're looking at at least until the end of 2022, I think, before uh, they they finalize these changes. And then all this stuff is going to be litigated. Um, you know, even if they're able to find a rule that works for 90% of the stakeholders on on both sides of the aisle, and you know that this is an issue that's so politicized um, that you know it's going to be very difficult for them to get to a place where they've got a rule that everyone likes. So, it of course will be litigated by folks on the on both the left and the right, and then it'll go to court, and then it'll kind of be the same thing that happened. With the last several iterations of the rule, there's probably going to be a court out there that strikes it down to some degree. And then maybe it makes its way up to the Supreme Court at some point. And then the Supreme Court is going to need to be in the position to provide some clarity and guidance uh, because really, at the end of the day, um, the Supreme Court back in 2006 uh, effectively kicked the can to the agency to say, figure it out. Um, you know, you had Kennedy's concurrence in what's called the significant nexus test. You've had Scalia's plurality which which is what the relatively permanent waters test was. But really, that was a 414 decision, and it's very difficult uh, to take guidance away from the Supreme Court on that. So it's going to be up to the Supreme Court this time to actually get it right, provide some clear guidance, and put this issue to rest. Congress ain't going to do it. They can barely agree on what color the sky is. So we're left with the Supreme Court providing some final guidance here. So the more things
0: change, the rule keeps changing, The more they stay the same, the same being the challenges, the litigation, the uncertainty. So here we go again. So through all that, and as as you said, it's going to wind up in the courts and that takes time. We get back to the question for landowners. What do they do in the meantime? What rules in place while all these challenges take place?
3: Well, that's the worst part is that it's just further confusion for landowners and and producers across the country because now we're getting kicked back to the 86 regulation. What does that mean? How is EPA and the Army Corps going to implement it? And those are a lot of open questions that we don't have answers to. Um, I think one big takeaway from going back to the 86 regulation is that, like I said before, it's going to rely much – the 86 regulation relies – much more on case-by-case determinations, and that's a big difference from the 2015 rule from the Obama administration because that rule categorically regulated everything, so you didn't need to ask the government because it was in. The 2020 Trump rule categorically excluded ephemeral features, so if you have small features out on your property, you didn't need to worry about that. You didn't need to ask anybody because it was excluded from regulation, but now the 86 regulation is different from both those rules because it is a lot more foggy And basically, you're forced to ask the government whether or not you've got a WOTUS, and and then they rely on a case-by-case determination. So it puts landowners and and cattle producers back in the position of having to ask the government whether or not they've got a feature on their land. Yeah, it puts it right back
0: there where we've really started on this, private property rights versus uh, uh, federal government control and who has the say and who's making the determinations? What can, can you or cannot do on your own land? Water, navigable waters. It's just like it kind of opens everything back up again. Some things we thought we were
3: getting settled. Now we start all over again. We're starting all over again. It's a lot like that, that Bill Murray movie uh, from the 90s called Groundhog Day, where he just kept living the same day over and over again. And uh, that's what it feels like right now. Uh, We're going through the same process again, and um, you know that's not what we wanted. At the end of the day, that's that's bad governance, and it just creates further confusion and questions for the folks out there who have to work the land. And you know that cattle producers are some of the best stewards of our land. So having to put them back in this position where we're just we've got question marks in front of us, it just doesn't help anybody. Well, not everyone agreed or supported
0: the, the 2020 rule, there were a lot of groups besides agriculture that did support it. There was a pretty big, broad coalition supporting the new rule. Um, do you expect then that there will be that same coalition pushing uh, to get something back to that or fighting going back to pre 2015? How do you see these alliances and the, the strategy moving forward on this? And what will you do at NCBA as far as, uh, do you fight for the 2020 rule? Do you just, are you just opposing the going back to the
3: pre 15 rule? Where do you stand on this? Well, there's a couple different battlefields on these policy issues. The two that are in play right now are in the executive branch. So lobbying the agencies and providing comments to them to help get them to the right outcome. The other battlefield is in the courts. And in the courts, we have, we've we've been fighting on both fronts. So it, in the courts, we have been in court defending the navigable waters protection rule alongside the government and trying to fight that battle even in the face of the government changing and, and basically uh, dropping their defense of the Navigable Waters Protection Rule. have been able to kind of fill that gap and, and try to bolster the defense of that rule. So that's going to that's kind of coming to a close now because the government's taking a posture. It's kind of mooting out some of these cases. But next will be whenever this, this repeal is finalized and whenever they finalize a, a, a substantive replacement in their Step 2 process, um, If we don't like those and we think it's going to harm our producers, we have an opportunity to go to the court to to challenge those rules. So we'll have an opportunity to do that. Of course, at the same time, we have an opportunity to try to get the government to the right policy outcome. And that that strategy and that campaign is ongoing. We're meeting with the uh, leadership of the uh, EPA and Army Corps. We're filing comments with them and we're doing everything we can to try to shape it in a way where we end up with a rule that works for cattle producers. Again, the 2020 rule was just that. So we're, we hate to have, have to be in a position where we're going down the same path again, but our job as the National Cattlemen's Beef Association is to try to do everything we can to get this administration to the right outcome. And if they don't get there, then, then we look at our options as far as, as legal challenges. Um, so it's kind of a two-pronged approach, and then at the same time, you've got Congress on that third prong. But right now, they're not really in a position to do a whole lot with the the, the composition of the, the Congress, um, but more to come there. Yep, the battle continues over waters
0: of the U.S. Scott, thank you for the update. We'll stay in touch. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right. At Scott Yeager, Chief Environmental Counsel for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up.
1: Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. Welcome back to AOA
0: on this Thanksgiving day. And again, thank you for joining us and letting us be part of your holiday Recently, uh, I talked with Don Close. He is the Senior Animal Protein Analyst for Robo AgriFinance. We talked about the strong demand globally for meat and why that is so important to U.S. meat producers. Certainly, our exports have been very strong this year, and it looks like that will continue. And Don also talked about uh, his outlook for the cattle market moving ahead into 2022.
4: Our expectations are we will see growth in the beef exports to China in 2022 of another two to four percent. The whole Pacific ram, we think the stability of trade with with Japan, we're continuing to see growth with South Korea and then China, that's, that's clearly going to continue to be the hub of the growth.
0: Do the supply chain issues hurt our credibility as a reliable supplier?
4: It's most certainly a risk. Uh, I think the I think we have the luxury of twofold misery loves company that everybody's having the same mm-hmm. problem. So, you're, so there's some latitude there, but it's also it, it, we're still even with the port backups where they are today. We're still the most reliable shipper out there. So.
0: Yeah, it's not just our problem. It's, it's a global problem.
4: I was, I was at an MEF meeting last week, and I had several people in there, the experts in the whole transportation area, and, and they were talking, you know, you can't fix one component of this. The whole system needs revamped. And I, I think that's not true just in the U.S., but, but globally.
0: What is your uh, cattle market outlook for next year?
4: We're, we're very optimistic. Uh, our average price outlook for the year for fed cattle is 140, which which I think is, is very aggressive. So, you know, we're going to have to see prices in those high 40s, even to the 150 level for a spring high, if we're going to see that kind of annual average. If you look at the distribution of cattle and the contraction of supply, we will should be seeing through the second half of 2022, I think we we could be buffered for just how much pressure we're under in that July, summer low, July August. So that will that will help our our average as well. But uh overall we think you know we're looking at uh, as I say a very very positive outlook And TUR, as we slowly get back towards an equilibrium in the market. That's going to enable us to see yearling prices in the high 170s to 180 level and we're talking range on calf prices for next year in that 190 to 210 level. So finally seeing that help we've been looking for.
0: As we continue to come through the pandemic mm-hmm. and the changes that we're seeing in in all of our lives in so many different ways, we've seen different patterns about eating out, eating at home, things like that. Mm-hmm. How do you see that impacting protein demand moving forward?
4: Well, clearly so far it's been phenomenal. Now, with the, the 5.8% inflation rate that we saw in September, the 6.2 percent we saw in October, I think we're, we're, there's a level of uneasiness mm-hmm. with consumers that, that will have an impact. I was looking at the University of, of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index earlier this week, and clearly that consumer confidence is down. But what, where I'm trying to go with this is, I th- you know, to see, the 740 all be price, 780 choice. Could we see prices back off some yet? Yeah. But if you look at the contracting supply, the export demand we've already talked about, our view is these retail prices are going to hold very close to where we're at today. And that's what's generating the the cash flow to support the whole beef network and get higher prices back to the farm.
0: Okay, so this is interesting because historically we have seen in inflationary times higher prices, consumers backing away from uh, the higher end, higher cuts of beef, right? That's yeah. what tradition said, they look for the lower yeah. priced one. So do you see something different uh, in today's dynamic or
4: not? I don't think it's going to be radically different. W- where What we do argue is we think beef demand is actually very stable but what we will see as those times when consumers back off is they will start to ratchet down of which beef items they buy so through the, the stay at home pandemic you know demand for high and middle meats has been phenomenal but could we see see you know, that trend down we're still seeing incredible demand for ground beef. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't want to say we, we're not going to slow down, but <laughs> underlying demand still very good.
0: And has been for some time now, yes, hasn't it. It. it? Yes, it has. This historically, is this a longer run than we usually see for this or?
4: <sighs> it It has, yes. but it's also been the demand base, the disruption in the market. As you said, the the escalation in meals at home right. and what that means for cooking skills. And Mike, in the forty years I've been doing this, I've never seen anything like it. Mm-hmm. It's incredible.
0: So stronger cattle prices. Um, those, those in the cattle business are also going to be looking at higher feed costs for some time too, right? So that's the other part of the equation.
4: Absolutely, and there, you know, the the thing. I, I'm personally looking at if you look at the strength we're seeing in basis levels this soon after harvest. I think with the outlook there, that the uncertainty from the input prices, once this crop gets under roof, yeah, I think it's going to take a pickaxe to pry it away from these farmers. So I think that's creating an undercurrent. The other thing with with input prices where they're at, um, this unbelievable demand for oil of all types
0: that's don close senior animal protein analyst for rabo agri-finance i talked with him last week in kansas city at the national association of farm broadcasting convention and with that we're going to wrap it up on this thanksgiving day again hope you have a great holiday great holiday season and a very safe one as well coming up tomorrow Mike Pearson will be sitting in for me. He'll have a lot of information, a lot of guests for you as well as this holiday weekend continues. Of course, Mike is going to be the new host here on AOA as I move into retirement later this year. Again, thank you for joining us. Have a great Thanksgiving, everyone, from all of us here at AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.